From Miami Law, I'm Annette Uges, and this is The Explainer. You can't recover that species, you know, Jurassic Park and taking blood from, you know, amber aside, the species are gone. Welcome to season three of The Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. Last week, the Trump administration significantly weakened the Endangered Species Act by enacting new rules impacting the way the law is applied by diminishing critical habitat protections in favor of financial considerations. Today on our show, Jessica Auli is our guest, Miami Law's new professor of environmental law with a focus on climate change law. Auli is a leading expert on private land conservation and conservation easements. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skip with the interview. Good morning, Jessica. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you. Um, so let's start out with just like a little crib notes on what's in the Endangered Species Act. Sure. It's a statute from 1973 uh, written um, during an era of a lot of environmental attention where and not a lot of controversy. This was not a really decisive issue at the time. And it has a couple of major components to it. The first is identifying and listing species that are endangered, plus those that are likely to become endangered in the foreseeable future, and those are the threatened species. It's a pretty long process to list a species. It has to be done based on science. It's done often based on petitions from the public or from scientists. At this point in time, there's... Somewhere around 1,500, probably a little bit more species that are listed as endangered or threatened. Once a species is listed, that triggers a bunch of different protections. Um, When the listing process happens, the Fish and Wildlife Service, who's the agency who handles most of the listing, also in concert with NOAA Fisheries, who handles all of the species that spend some of their time in the ocean. Those agencies, once a species is listed, are supposed to designate critical habitat, the important habitat that we need to protect those species. And then all agencies, all public federal agencies, are supposed to enter in consultation with those services anytime they have an action that is likely to impact endangered species. So there's this consultation process that has some couple different requirements to try and reduce the impact on species. The other part of the Endangered Species Act that is often a controversial part is that there is a Section 9 of the statute prohibits the taking of species. And take in this context is a really broad word that means any impact on the species and it includes harassing them, destroying their homes, and the actual killing of a species. Mm-hmm. So those are the big, broad parameters of the Endangered Species Act. Great. Well, it seems that it has been an overwhelming success since President Richard Nixon passed it in 1973. What are the main major indicators of its success? Well, the major indicator of its success is that most of the species that have been listed have recovered. So that's what we generally say. We would say 99% of the species that have made it onto the list are doing well. Of course, other people would point out that we have a lot of species who have not made it onto the list, and there's a lot of lawsuits and work consistently to try and get more species protected. Because once protected, species do relatively well. There is also the challenge of even once a species is protected, it is very slow for the services, for the Fish and Wildlife Service, to get around to putting together the plans to help the species recover, to get around to designating the habitat. They are critically underfunded, um, the Fish and Wildlife Service, and their duties for the Endangered Species Act. So while we often say it's a success because we can point to these 
uh, percentage of species that are doing well after they're listed. There's also a lot of challenges under the Endangered Species Act because there's so many hurdles um, to actually getting listed and getting the habitat designated. So I don't want to say it's not a successful statute, but I think to say it's an overwhelming success is offer also overselling the statute. Okay. Um, so the Trump administration is is passing some new rules that would sort of gut the act. Well, I'm assuming it will be one fought in court before it's enacted. But if it, if it did go into effect, what would be the impact and how quickly would we start to see the um, things going wrong in the environment? Sure. So the Fish and Wildlife Service is the agency um, uh, that works on carrying out the statute. And to carry out the statute, to carry out the will of Congress, they do so through these regulations. The regulations, uh, the most recent version is from 2009, some changes in 2014. And now we've had this proposal from the Trump administration that uh, not only will be challenged, has already been challenged. Uh, we already have one lawsuit that's filed by a coalition of environmental organizations uh, we also have California and Massachusetts have announced that they will file a, a suit or that they're planning to do so. Um, there's still qu quite a bit of time before they have to file suit. We've had seen some 60-day notice of intent to sue letters go out and things like that. So, yes, this is going to be challenged. I'll tell you why it's going to be challenged. There's quite a few changes it, um, it makes. The, the regulations for this statute are extensive. As you can imagine, it's a very complicated statute to try and figure out how to protect species. The, the services have a lot of details about how to exactly carry that out. Um, there's a few different things that are going to be changed. One is uh, a proposed change to the listing process that I mentioned. How do species actually get on the list? And in particular, the how do species get on the list as threatened Remember I said that was for the foreseeable future they become endangered? Mm -hmm. Well, they're changing how we think of foreseeable to mean that it has to be really something um, that's in, not merely possible but likely to occur. So people believe that this is a code word for saying climate change, that climate change is maybe more long-term, a little bit more speculative, and you have to show that it's something that's going to happen right now. Um, in, Amazon in the fires notwithstanding. Amazon fires notwithstanding. That's not saying climate change isn't happening, but what's the threat to the species? So mm -hmm. the polar bear is always kind of the example given under the Endangered Species Act. Polar bear was listed as a threatened species based not on many other things that we might think polar bears are being threatened by, but based on the fact that climate change is, is slowly or quickly destroying their habitat. Mm -hmm. Well, how quickly, how foreseeable? This is a question that you can see there's a lot of discretion kind of the, within the agency perhaps to interpret what they think the word foreseeable means in the mm -hmm. statute. And the language that they're adopting now suggests that foreseeable is a shorter time frame, that you've got to really show it happening now. Um, the other the thing- The attention span of a gnat. <laughs> perhaps. Or Perhaps or, somebody else. I mean, science is uh, climate science is is uh, is not easy science. It's really hard to predict exactly what these changes would be. One of the things that this kind of does is really lessens our idea of using a precautionary principle. We often say, you know, endangered species. If you lose a species. You, you can't recover that species, you know, Jurassic Park and taking blood from, you know, amber aside, the species are gone. So a lot of the ethos around Congress has been um, in the 73 Congress, the reauthorizations of the act periodically has been let's act on the side of caution. Let's do the measures that will protect species. 
this is starting to go the other way and be less precautionary and be a little bit more um, open to extractive industries that might want to take actions that Mm -hmm. might be affecting these species. Uh, The rules have also said that when you're deciding whether to list a species, you can only look at science. You cannot take into account any economic factors in the decision of whether a species merits that label of endangered or threatened. Right. The statute hasn't changed. What's changing is the regulations. The agency is changing their interpretation of that rule to say that they could sometimes prohibit uh, consider economic factors. As you can imagine, that is clearly being challenged by in court as being, well, that's not what the statute says. They haven't made it clear when they would consider economic factors, but they have deleted the sentences from their regulations that said that they would not consider them. So a little bit tricky to figure out exactly what they'll do there. Another thing that um, they've changed is under the uh, previous rules, any time a species was listed as threatened, it got the same protections automatically as endangered species. If we felt that it didn't need that higher level of protection, we could make some special rules about threatened species that would be a little bit downgraded, a little bit easier. Um, They've reversed that presumption. So now threatened species will not automatically get that protection as endangered species. And instead, you'll need specific rules for each threatened species. Uh, This was passed uh, with a statement that this would be easier on the agencies. I I, I question that myself because now we have to write a species-specific law law or regulation each time instead of being able to rely on a blanket rule. Mm -hmm. We'll see how that plays out. Um, big changes to the consultation process. Remember I said you had to talk, the agencies have to talk to the services when they're doing anything that might af- right. impact them. Well, now they're saying, well, there's some things we're going to exempt from that consultation process, kind of some of the planning, some of the forest planning, long range management plans. We won't make you go through that consultation process because planning is kind of a more speculative tip thing. Mm-hmm. Um, We also are not going to require you to show kind of as specific mitigation as we used to. So there used to be if you were going to have a project that would negatively impact endangered species um, by adversely modifying their habitat, critical habitat, you'd say, well, you better show us alternatives and mitigation that will actually work and that have funding and support before we're going to let you go ahead. Now they're removing that requirement. They still say you have to show those things, but you don't have to make that added showing that mm-hmm. there's money for it, there's support for it, and that it's going to happen. So we can see how these are seem like small little changes, but could have significant impacts on species. Um, and uh, the designation of critical habitat is the third kind of big area of change here. So critical habitat is... Um, designated when supposedly when we list a species, often that's what happens at much slower rate and has to be challenged before it'll happen. Um, they're making more exemptions to when critical habitat has to be designated. And they are also part of an ongoing legal battle, kind of resolving an issue about whether or not um, habitat that is unoccupied currently should be listed. And what I mean by this is we can picture that there's a lot of endangered species out there Um Where there's habitat, there's areas that they would happily live if they were there, but they're in danger. There's not that many of them. So it's unoccupied habitat, but habitat that has the characteristics that the species could be there. Or maybe we even have studies showing they used to be there. Well, part of the critical habitat process used to quite frequently list some of those areas. The new rules would say you can only list those rules if 
you can't find enough of currently occupied habitat. So we got to go first for the currently occupied habitat before we can start incorporating the unoccupied habitat. A lot of conservation biologists are upset by this because they feel the unoccupied habitat actually might be some of the most important to protect Mm -hmm. because that's where we could bring in new species and try and bring back the populations. And as the population exceeded the carrying capacity of the habitat that it's in, it gives you room for that habitat, for that species to grow in. Yeah. Grow into the larger habitat. Exactly. Exactly. So this is why there's a lot of reasons why uh, conservation biologists, environmentalists want expansive ideas of critical habitat. They want kind of measures that will give more opportunities for these species because our hope is that they're recovering, that they're coming back, that there's more of them. Mm -hmm. But every time you designate something as critical habitat, that that provides a challenge, that poses a challenge on developers who might want to use that land for something else. And in particular, a lot of the debates right now are for extractive industries, oil and gas exploration on land um, uh, throughout the United States, mm-hmm. actually, that, that might kind of run into a conflict with that. There's some small other changes, one of them in the making it harder, changing the rules about delisting, actually making it easier for things to come off the list. Um, just changing the thresholds a little bit. So all of these little pieces together are going to be challenged in a bunch of different ways in legal suits. Some of them, I think, are going to be very clear challenges. Others might be harder. Um, Always hard to know exactly what it's going to mean for the critters out there Mm -hmm. once these things are passed, which of these will become more significant than others. Right. So let's say some, all pieces of these do actually withstand the court challenge. How quickly could the... a a new administration sort of turn that clock back? And how soon would we see an impact? How soon would we see a change? Well, you could relatively quickly turn back the clock on a regulation. What I mean by that is you could go through the process of repealing the regulation. But I mean, think about the Trump administration. Please. (laughs) No. As we look at the Trump administration, and this is something that has been on their docket from day one. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was part of the campaign speeches and everything, that there's too much regulation out there, and in particular, the Endangered Species Act is nobody's favorite. He actually tried to get statutory changes, um, and there were quite a few proposals within Congress. They didn't go anywhere, which is why they're using um, looking at regulations instead. That wasn't that quick, though, that we're here to this regular, you know, we have a few years of the Trump administration under our belt before we get these proposed regulations mm-hmm. out there. Regulations are a time consuming process, right? They have to go through notice and review. Um, some of the legal challenges here are that the notice and review haven't been adequate. So it'd be a really long time, I think, even before these ones could go into effect. So you, you'd be looking at the same type of process next time around. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we wouldn't have to. How kind of, would you tear down that Walmart that they put in critical habitat? Well, that's a separate question that you can't, right? So right. you could change the statute. Uh, you could change, sorry, you could change the regulations mm-hmm. for the species going forward, but it wouldn't undo that damage that's done to the species under these rules once they go into effect. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't undo like the species, any species that we lost. It would be really hard to undo any habitat we lost. Nobody is going to tear down a Walmart that was built on a critical habitat if that were to happen. Right. I'm not suggesting Walmart has that plan, but... You know what I mean? There is like a, a pace to this. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of endangered species in Florida. Um, there's the deer. There's the panther. You know, there's others, uh, c- crocodiles. And um, and the panther was a huge flip out because they were so inbred that they brought in Texas cougars 
to try to bring in some fresh genetic material, even though historically they all were on the same range. So they historically had shared a gene pool. Uh, and then there was a whole argument whether, well, now they're not threatened because now they're mutts or whatever. But This is true with wolves too, right? So there's a lot of these species that you kind of want. We think of like the indigenous Florida panther, and they're like, well, panther, cougar, puma, they're all the same thing, so let's not protect them. There's enough if we look at that broader category. They, like they have, we shoot them in some places, but... So wolves is a great example of that, right? right? Like we want to bring back the wolves to Minnesota, but maybe we feel like there's enough in Wyoming. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like So there's a lot of people who have different emotional feelings about wolves too, mm-hmm. whether you think they're kind of beautiful part of nature or a threat to your cattle, you know, so sure. there's always, um, but the key deer, I know there's been a lot of stuff going back and forth about, um, there's a proposal to delist them. Mm-hmm. So one of the things might be as delisting becomes an easier process that maybe they'll be able to go through that faster, but I just haven't, um, looked at them in particular. No worries. Um, anything we forgot to talk about? Let me think. Um, I think the timing of this is kind of, interesting and scary. You know, it's coming right after this huge UN report that's telling us that we're losing more species than ever and that we're at a critical time and extinction of a species. And so to have this come out just, you know, days after that is pretty, um, just, just shows the administration's attitudes toward the international environmental community. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing to note, I, I mentioned this a little bit, but the uh, the lawsuits, the lawsuits that are being filed, a lot of them are not just um, going to be about the Endangered Species Act, but they're going to be about the process that the Trump administration has been using mm-hmm. to make these changes. So there's challenges in particular under the National Environmental Policy Act, what we call NEPA, saying that um, they didn't give enough notice of what their rules are going to be. So some of these final rules were not in the proposed rules. So people are like, we didn't even get a chance to think about these and to comment on them. So I think there's also a lot of people who are upset just kind of about the process that the Trump administration is going through and how quickly they're trying to change things. Strategically. Strategically, what they're going to mention, what they're not. um, You know, that's always a tricky one for a court is whether or not the agency has done enough in the public comment process and whether they've given enough time, that they've listened to enough people, whether they've responded adequately. But I know that those will be part of the lawsuits Mm -hmm. as well. Great. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Another fabulous chat with Jessica Owley. Thank you. Thanks for joining us at The Explainer. If you like the show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Ugez. Today's show was brought to you by Miami Law's Maritime Law Postgraduate Program for lawyers who want to specialize in marine and environmental law and policy, environmental law of the sea, or admiralty law.